Hey everybody, and welcome to SFD short number two. The first short episode has a pretty good number of listens, but literally only one person has given me any feedback. However, that feedback was, quoting here, I think it's my favorite thing you've ever done on SFD. That's a little rough, given that it probably took me three hours to write and maybe an hour to record and edit that first short, uh, versus literal months for the long shows, but whatever, it's cool. And I'm happy to put out more stuff for you guys to listen to. So, we've got number two here. It's about looking at history from the outside. My name's John, and this is Safer Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. Yes, our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land and every one of our lives. I would remind you that scripture tells us that blessed are the peacemakers. I want to underscore the word makers. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? Now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war, but there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace, and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Have you ever noticed how our history seems exceptional? I don't mean American exceptionalism in the way it comes up in the State of the Union, or not exactly. I mean the way it feels when you think about it, compared to when you think about the history of Rome, say, or of Mexico. There's something less straightforward about our history, something more nuanced. We have more shades of gray. Now, whether or not you agree necessarily with any of that, meditate on it for a minute. Consider the Vietnam War. Why were the French in Indochina in the 50s? Because of colonialism. Simple. 
They had a colony, they lost it, they were taking it back. Why were we there in the 1960s? Supporting our allies, maybe, or war profiteering, or as part of the containment policy and domino theory. Tell the story of American involvement in Vietnam to yourself and see if it comes out in as few words as the story of the French. It's natural and almost inevitable to feel that way about your own history. If you're American, you probably know more U.S. history more intimately than anyone else's, and that much just by osmosis, through television or movies or books or school or what have you. The same is true of French history if you're French, Canadian if you're Canadian. I've spent a lot of time in Mexican schools, and they spend every single semester learning about the same group of guys who founded their republic year in and year out the exact same way that I was taught in Michigan. I've studied more Roman history, more Latin American history, and more European history than my own, thanks to what I did in college, but I still have a better feel for how it looked and sounded in the back when in the U.S. than in any other place. And everybody feels this way about their own country's past, which is, just to note, why the phrase American exceptionalism rubs pretty much everybody in the world the wrong way. One of the consequences of the conceptual divide between our history and their history is that we see other countries' past as more objective and ours as more subjective, just like with us and the French in Vietnam. Take the Munich Agreement in the lead-up to the Second World War. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain signs away the Czech Sudetenland to Adolf Hitler. You learn this in a history classroom in the United States, and it's a lesson in what not to do, in historical cowardice, in the rubbery backbones of the Europeans that eventually forced a reluctant United States into the Second World War. We don't consider, as British people probably do, that Britain had lost 1.2 million men in the Great War, one in every 25, disproportionately among the young. We call Hemingway and his in the United States the lost generation, but Britain literally lost a generation. At that point in their history, anything was justifiable for a British PM if it would have avoided a repeat of 1914. But to us, looking in from the outside, again, Chamberlain was just a cowardly screw-up. On our side, in the same period, we never look at FDR as a president who just waited until the most opportune moment to join a going war, when letting it continue might prejudice our current or post-war commerce. We see our then-reluctance to fight not as anything as simple as cowardice or desire to capitalize on the war trade with Britain or self-defense at the expense of Europe, but as a cunning plan by FDR as an imperial president held back by isolationist traditionalists following the founding fathers, a hero president held back by crypto-fascist conservatives until his hand was freed by Pearl Harbor, etc., etc., we see perspectives and depth. In other people's history, because we don't get it nonstop in media and books and news, we see objective and indisputable facts. And one of the consequences of that viewpoint is it dehumanizes the people involved in those histories. So an interesting mental exercise, especially in the context of this podcast and this blog, is to try to reverse your perspective. To think about current events in other countries as if they were your own is tough. Because for the most part, we just don't have the knowledge and the experience, so we can only go a little ways in that direction. But thinking about our own history as if it was somebody else's, that we can do. Our foreign policy, and even our casual thought, are informed by the fallacy of the exceptionalism of American history. So let's break that idea down. 
The subject of the first episode of this podcast is an American-led coup against a democratically elected president named Arbenz in Guatemala. Now, I don't know if you've heard that episode yet or not, but Arbenz was only the second freely and fairly elected executive in a country that had been dominated for centuries, first by the Spaniards and then by its own entrenched elites. The CIA and the Eisenhower administration used Arbenz's quote-unquote socialist policies as an excuse to remove him and to install a military dictator who would be more amenable to American business interests. But Arbenz's government wasn't any more socialist or communist than FDR's had been, and the programs that he tried to enact later became standard operating procedure for the U.S.-run Alliance for Progress. So how is it that elites, that is, businessmen, presidents, spooks, and policymakers in the United States, came to destroy Guatemalan democracy so thoroughly, and what's almost worse, so offhandedly? That intervention and every other one of the dozens like it over the last 70 years were only possible and only tolerated by the American public at large because of this mental break that we have and that I'm trying to get at wherein people across our borders cease to be people in quite the same way that we're people. So in order to develop a human view and a human feeling towards those people outside the U.S., we first got to turn inwards. See yourself as a foreigner might see you. Look at each individual fact in the news as though you'd heard it about someplace south of the U.S., and see if that informs the way you look abroad. Imagine that this news was just in from Brazil. Infrastructure is crumbling. Education is on a downswing. The social safety net is teetering on the verge of bankruptcy. But the military holds such sway over society that even self-described liberals think that a year-to-year freeze in defense spending is dangerously radical. Politics on the national stage is dominated by a few oligarchic families. The Kennedys, the Bushes, the Clintons, the Rockefellers, the Fords, and the Trumps, among others. Imagine those names are Portuguese. Some, like the Bushes, have used this state to wage wars as a means of greatly increasing their holdings abroad and their profits at home. Imagine you'd heard that coming out of Brazil, and everything sounds a little different. To us, campaign finance is a tortured mess that we have to live with. To a foreigner looking in at our campaign system, it would be more like this. In the years since the end of the Second World War, the Republican Party, which is now the party of wealth, succeeded in eroding all limits on spending in the political process. Millionaires then came to occupy the majority of the legislature. And while previously respected as an independent institution with the power to curb these tendencies, the Supreme Court has become a political football fought over the president and the legislature. You're used to hearing about all that in the news here, and you know the nuances and the ins and outs. But if you imagine that very same set of circumstances coming in over the AP from Germany or France, you'd say, whoa, that's corrupt. That's a corrupt system. I wrote this original post before the election, but it's only gotten more and more applicable since then. My girlfriend's Mexican, and every once in a while, after working on some of those news posts, I'd come down the stairs and give her little summaries, just so I could wrap my own mind around what was going on. I'd say stuff like, so get this, when Trump was about to be nominated, he gives a big press conference about how he's going to divest himself of all his businesses. But his plan is basically not to divest himself at all. And that just goes through. That just happens. Then we find out he's also going to literally use his Mar-a-Lago retreat as a second White House with the government paying all the bills, directly to Donald Trump. Then we find out he's going to ignore the emoluments clause and pretty much allow foreigners to bribe him by staying at his hotels or buying his apartments. 
And then we find out that even the paper firewall between him and his businesses is fake, and his sons are giving him bi-weekly updates on Trumpco. And then he hires his son-in-law as a senior advisor, makes him a shadow secretary of state, puts him in charge of opioid addiction, Middle East peace, and overhauling the government. Oh, and then like two weeks ago, he hires his daughter too. And my girlfriend will look up from whatever she's doing and she'll say, yeah, it sounds a lot like Mexico. So when you really try to see us how somebody else might see us, we start to sound a little bit less like a city upon a hill and more like any other goddamn place. So there are two conclusions to take away from this exercise, and if you're really doing this exercise, it's not too hard to come to them. The first is that everyone else is like us. To take Mexico again, we know it's corrupt. And we imagine that all Mexicans are somehow okay with or complicit in that same corruption. But it's not that way. They feel about policemen and bureaucrats taking bribes and politicians taking much bigger ones the same way that we do about guys in Washington taking billions of dollars from Wall Street and K Street. Somewhere between righteous anger and, well, what can you do? They feel the same way that we do because they are the same as us. The second thing that you should be coming to, and it sounds the same as the first but really is not, is that we are also like everyone else. The converse is easy. It feels good to imagine that everyone else is as good as you. This is harder because what I'm saying is that we're no better than anyone else, and we tend to think pretty terrible shit about everyone else. So when you read about the next horrible corrupt thing the Trump administration is doing, try to make an effort for me. Try not to think of it as the latest result of a series of very complex electoral and political circumstances. Try not to think about it as the natural result of Fox News and talk radio poisoning the minds of the American right. Try to think of it as you would think of news coming up from Mexico. Boy, that's corrupt. And then, if you can manage it, the next time you hear about some news from abroad, especially from a country somebody on Fox or MSNBC or somebody in the White House press room has been telling you not to like, try to turn that news around. Are the Iranians detaining American sailors because they hate our freedoms? Or because they're defending their territorial waters from a military incursion by a country that has, historically, been their enemy? Is that a bit more understandable than what they've maybe been serving you on the television? You have to do it intentionally, but it's just a small bit of effort to start seeing foreigners, even scary Farsi-speaking brown ones, as people like us with legitimate concerns and motivations and a complex relationship to their own government. When a Latin American president enacts a slate of social programs and the Wall Street Journal tells you that it's a new resurgence of red socialism, question whether maybe, instead, it's a reaction to a set of complicated historical internal circumstances that probably doesn't warrant any kind of reaction or intervention on the part of the United States. And then every time you read about atrocities and oppression abroad, Remember that there, but for the grace of God, go we. This show is about American foreign policy, and here's where it comes full circle. The synthesis of those two earlier statements, that everyone else is like us and that we are like everyone else, is this. What right do we have to impose our will by force on anyone? What right do we have to impose our will by force when we are not in fact exceptional, but ordinary and well-armed? Not much of a right, not morally. Every time we ignore the UN, every time we ignore international law, 
Every time we ignore our treaty obligations, remember that the only right we have to do so is that of the thug and the bully, of might makes right. There is nothing exceptional about us. And you can stop wondering why people are so ungrateful when we liberate them and democratize them and Americanize them. Because how would you feel if somebody did it to you? As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.